are the church. We are the church. The church is not a building. The church is the people. The literal meaning in the New Testament of the word that we have chosen to express as church means we're called out. We're called out from living in worldly ways to being people together who live in a godly way by faith in Jesus Christ. So we are the called out ones. We are the church. Today's sermon is entitled Pseudo-Christianity, like fake Christianity. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is where we'll be today. We'll have it up on the screen when we get there, and you're welcome to open up your Bibles. There's Bibles every so many chairs in the, um, underneath the chair in front of you, so um, pick your way of looking at God's Word. We also have an app, and there in the screens that come up before the service, it shows you how to log on to our app get accepted into it, and then you can follow along with uh, an app that will take you to the scriptures that I'm talking about throughout the sermon, so you're welcome to find that and log on and use that going forward. So, we've all got a phone or a tablet or something, so it would be great to use it for worship and to follow the sermon. So, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, like many of Paul's letters, his letter to, that we know as 1 Timothy changes direction about halfway through the letter, about midpoint, and it discusses a different set of topics in the second half of the letter than, than he has been discussing in the first half. So in the first half of this letter, 1 Timothy, Paul has dealt with principles, the call to ministry in 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 2, qualifications for leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the content of the Christian message, 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 3, and the primary importance of proper worship, which is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So now we're entering the second half of the letter, 1 Timothy chapter 4 through chapter 6, and Paul goes from talking about principles to dealing with practical matters, relationships within the church, spiritual models, good and bad, materialism, to that a little bit today. The financial support of ministers and even the importance of prayer before meals. Paul always, in all his letters in the New Testament, makes a close connections between principles and practice. The Christian faith is not just a mental agreement with a, a set of statements. Our faith is meant to be lived out in obedience to Jesus Christ and in obedience to his word to us. Truth is to be obeyed. Jesus is to be served. Principles and practice are closely connected. Always. So, we just, at the end of last week's sermon, looked at the transition in the letter. All transitions from principles to, to practice um, Primarily in the last three verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we looked at last week, where there's he references the church as the household of God. And then he shares a, a hymn to Christ. And then in the last two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, easy for me to say, we find a reference to the Father to the Son, and then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, 
we see a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so there, in, in just a couple verses, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one God revealed to us in three persons, all engaged in the struggle of truth with error that was occurring in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring and Paul wrote him this letter. The outcome of this struggle has eternal consequences. That's forever. There are two destinations after this life, and which one you have chosen in this life will be your destination eternally. So the struggle with truth and error has eternal consequences. With all that in mind, let's read now 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. So, we're going verse by verse, word by word, through Paul's letter that we know as 1 Timothy. And let's continue now. This first thing that Paul addresses is abandoning the faith. So let's, let's talk about that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 begins, The Spirit clearly says. So Paul has a word from the Holy Spirit, and with clarity and simplicity, and boldness, Paul is telling us what the Holy Spirit is saying. So Paul's word from the Spirit may have come from his knowledge that Jesus had predicted in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13, a falling away from the faith by some. The Holy Spirit may have spoken directly to Paul, because it did at other times. It happened with Paul when Paul's itinerary changed during his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16, Paul and his missionary team had plans to go to one place, and the Holy Spirit told Paul, no, you go to this different place. And so they totally changed their plans. So there was another time that Paul, that the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul directly. And also when the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul that imprisonment awaited him in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. We find that in Acts chapter 20. So Paul may have heard from the Spirit through what he knew Jesus has said. Paul may have heard from the Spirit directly because both of those had occurred at other points in Paul's ministry before writing this letter to 1 Timothy. Paul had warned of a falling away in his address to the Ephesian elders that's recorded in Acts chapter 20. And similarly, Paul warned the Christians in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So this idea of falling away is not an isolated idea here. This is 
throughout Scripture, from the words of Christ and from the actual experience of the church as recorded in the rest of the New Testament. All of this shows us that the teaching and directing work of the Holy Spirit that was promised by Jesus in John chapter 16 was actually in effect in the church during Paul's ministry and through Paul's ministry. So, the Spirit clearly says, Paul says, and we can trust in that because the Spirit is alive and active through those who minister in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 continues, In later times, it's possible that Paul thought Jesus was coming back soon. It's commonly believed that that, that first generation of Christians commonly believed that Jesus was coming back really soon. And maybe Paul thought that. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. And we think 2,000 years is a long time. Um, but Paul, whatever the case, had a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel and about following Jesus, about taking principles of truth and practically living them out in everyday life. Every generation should live in anticipation that Christ will return. We should be living in anticipation of that today. It should give us a sense of urgency today. And we should live in anticipation of the knowledge that we don't know when it will happen. So we should be ready. If you think, oh, well, you know, when I can tell that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, then I'll, then I'll quit trying to live for sin, and then I'll get saved, right? That's like saying, well, I'll put my seatbelt on after the accident starts, right? That'll work out so well. We need an urgency that motivates us to share the good news. And we need an urgency that motivates us to choose obedience to the Holy Scriptures. Paul is making it clear that Timothy is already living in the later times. So, if Timothy was living in the later times, guess what? You and I are living in the later times today, right? Paul warns that, uh, still in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, that some will abandon the faith. Many states that really plainly. This is, this is a, still a controversial issue in the church, this idea of spiritual defection. Another word for it is apostasy. It is a tragic but real possibility. There are those who would say that anyone who leaves their faith was never genuinely saved. But that just contradicts the plain sense of Paul's words to Timothy here. If you believe that, then you have to explain 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, right? And say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. Twice. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and also in what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, apostasy, the falling away, those who came to faith in Christ and then chose to abandon their faith, happens. Those who fall away, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says, follow deceiving spirits. And let's contrast that to the Holy Spirit that Paul follows. He clearly heard from the Spirit in the same verse. So, those people who fall away open themselves up to, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, things taught by demons, in direct opposition to the sound doctrine of the gospel. 
So, passage is evidence that spiritual warfare is real. The clear mind and sense of balance that Paul prizes in overseers that we've seen in the previous chapters of 1 Timothy are desperately needed for the people in this passage that we're looking at today and desperately needed for you and I. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we can err, or err, depending on, on how you pronounce that word, so I have no idea. I, I, all I know is I say error, not err, so I say error, not err, but E-R-R, okay? So, error, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we can err in two ways. One is to ignore the reality of spiritual warfare. We can live our lives like it doesn't matter how closely we follow Jesus. It doesn't matter whether we seek the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't believe um, in the reality. We ignore the reality of spiritual warfare. The other way is to become obsessed with it. To see spirit, some external spiritual evil in everything. I talked about a lady, I think it was last week, who played the tambourine off me. It was a couple weeks ago, maybe. Um, same lady, one time, was there when Lucy sneezed a few times, and like on the third sneeze, she, she got out her anointing oil and anointed Lucy and prayed the dust demon out of <laughs> So, we can, we can err by ignoring the reality of spiritual evil, or we can become obsessed with it and blame spiritual evil for everything. Both of those are errors. The originator of the lie, those lies, things taught by demons, the originator is Satan, the one who stands opposed to Jesus. But the lying agents, those who actually tell the lies, they're flesh and blood people. We know them. We move among them. So, this should be important to us. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Boy, Paul, I wish you could beat around the bush here, right? Man, this is so blunt, direct unmistakable language. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So, these deceivers, they're not just mistaken. They're hypocritical liars. They intentionally mislead. And it says their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Another way to understand that verse, to translate that from the original language, is their consciences have been branded with a hot iron. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, there were slaves, and slaves during that time would be branded by their masters on their forehead. It would carry the master's brand on the forehead. Kind of hard to miss that, right? Without understanding... These false teachers that Paul's talking about belong to Satan and bear his brand. Man, this is strong language. Having made a career out of deception, having chosen deception and trafficked in it extensively, these false teachers would deceive 
without any pangs of conscience, without any sense of guiltiness whatsoever. Now, what a contrast to God's servants who are described in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as having a role of love coming from a pure heart and a good conscience. Man, there's a vast difference there. So let's apply 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 to our day and the area we live in. You know, we read stuff like this and, and Paul's stark, blunt words about how willfully, openly, repetitively deceitful these people are that it doesn't even bother anymore. And we think, well, how can people be like that? Let me be blunt and apply it to our day and our age and to people that we live around. Right now, we have neighbors, we have co-workers, we have family and friends that belong to a cult that's prominent right here in Gooding and in this area. I don't need to say it because you know who I'm talking about, don't you? So let's talk about that. I want you to choose to go to Isaiah and read chapters 43 through 46. This is the only passage I will talk to them about because nothing else matters if you don't understand this. Okay? Isaiah chapters 43 through 46. Over and over there. It says there only is there only ever has been, there only ever will be one God. And there are references to God in those chapters that we understand as references to the Father. The title for God of Savior is used there. And the Spirit of God is mentioned in those chapters. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the same passages that are saying over and over again, I alone am God, there is none besides me. Never has been, never will be. Jesus said the Father and I are one. He said that in the Gospel of John, chapter 10 and chapter 17. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus from the Father in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. So, Old Testament, New Testament, consistent, revealed to us in three persons, there only ever has been one God. Now, amen. So, these cult members we know will say in one breath that they believe in Jesus, and they believe in the Bible. And in the very next breath, they will say, and I am quoting, as man is, so God once was. As God is, so man may become. Quote, unquote. Hmm. So they believe there are more than one God in existence right now. They've read the Bible. 
They say they believe the Bible, all while they directly contradict the Bible of what it clearly says. How does that happen? According to 1 Timothy chapter 4, they have received deceiving spirits and they believe things taught by demons. They are hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. And I know those are blunt words, but if you were that lost, wouldn't you like somebody that's found the truth to enlighten you rather than let you go on to pursue that to the end of life and receive its eternal consequence? That wouldn't be love. So, while, by, while being quick to use his name, they have rejected Jesus Christ. The consequences for believing their lives is eternal damnation and hell. There's a lot at stake here for them and for us. This is why Paul was so forceful to condemn the false teachers in the church in Ephesus, and this is why we must directly oppose any intrusion by this cult into our faith and into our church, into the truth. Any, any questions? Now let's talk about spiritual masochism. Masochism is deliberately causing yourself pain. So there's some spiritual masochism going on in this passage. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So this false asceticism, and that's a fancy word I'll define it here in a second, that was in Ephesus when Paul wrote to 1 Timothy who was pastoring there, this arose because those who promoted it were believers in a dualistic or twofold worldview, material, spirit. They believed the things of the material of the spiritual world were holy. And they believed that the things of the physical world were evil. So they chose one of two responses to this belief regarding food and sex. One was asceticism, which is denying the evil body even the most basic appetites, needs, and comforts. That's one approach. The other approach was self-indulgence. These folks were known as libertines. They lived without moral restraint on the grounds that it didn't matter what the body did since the spirit only would survive. And so they indulged every thing they could think of with their bodies. So here in verse 3, Paul give, goes, gets into details of the heresy being taught in Ephesus. And the issue in Ephesus was asceticism, this false rigid, harmful even, denial of the needs of the body. One who practices this is an ascetic. Over the centuries, there have been ascetics in the church, and almost every one of them had good motives, but faulty judgment. They've rightly understood that there is self-denial as part of the faith, It's part of the cost of discipleship and even a measure of the devotion to Christ. And they thought, since my love for Christ is great, then how I deny myself 
will be great. And, it, and often it was extreme and even harmful. In the church in Ephesus, a radical form of this asceticism had arisen. Its promoters were mandating to those in the church mandatory celibacy among the followers. Singleness, being single and being celibate, not sexually active, has always been an option for Christians, but it has never been required. If you're single, you should be celibate, but it's never been required ever that you have to be single in the Bible. Biblical sexuality is to be expressed. How about that? There is good sexual expression. Um, that's kind of comforting to know in today's day and age. Biblical sexuality is to be expressed within the covenant marriage between one man and one woman. There is the proper place for the expression of our sexuality, a way that's biblical, a way that honors God, a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. Second, the false teachers insisted on abstinence from certain foods. Now, if, if we've ever read the Bible before, we know that dietary laws were important in Old Testament Judaism. And before anybody else, Jews came to faith in Christ. So the Jewish roots of this false teaching are easy to see here in this passage. Paul is telling us that that, that no longer applies. You can go into the book of Acts and read what, what Peter um, was saying he would never eat a certain food, and the Lord gave him a vision where three times a, a, a sheet or a blanket was lowered out of heaven with every animal you can imagine on it. And the Lord said that he created all of that, and that it's good, and it's okay. And so the Old Testament dietary laws were superseded by the revelation of the Holy Spirit to those who follow Jesus Christ. And so we no longer have to follow Old Testament dietary rules. It's all good because God created all of it. And so Paul affirmed self-denial when it's proper and appropriate, but Paul never approved of spiritual masochism through the denial of the God-given appetites in the human experience. So, we learn in this passage that everything God created is good. Everything God created is good. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created the foods in question for the church in that day, for the church today. Paul implies here that to reject them, the foods in question, to reject them as evil or unworthy, is to reject the God who created them. And then adding the rejection of marriage, they were rejecting the physical bodies God had created for them with the natural desires that can be expressed in a holy way that blesses God and brings him glory and honor. 
Paul says everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. So, what Paul says here reminds us of the account of creation in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. In that creation account, seven times God says of his creation, it is good. Only once does God say anything is not good, and it's not good for man to be alone. So God creates woman and institutes the covenant relationship of marriage. One man and one woman within a covenant relationship created by God. Created to complement each other. To bless each other. To complete each other. So, these false teachers that were influencing the church in Ephesus were neither thankful nor receptive. So, their claims to teach truth are not to be believed. We can go back and apply that to the challenges to the church, to those who want to add and subtract from the good news today. So, Thanksgiving. It's like about four months from now. Thanksgiving. First Timothy chapter four, verses four and five. Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Thanksgiving is important enough for Paul to mention it twice in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Nothing, not marriage, not food, or any of God's gifts is to be Rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's our part. Receive it with thanksgiving. Even the commonplace table blessing before eating, it's a major endorsement by Paul here. All the stuff, all the food he made is good. Let's give him thanks and let's eat some of it, right? We're going to do that together here in a little bit. Receiving God's gifts, including eating food, it says in this passage, is consecrated. Consecrated is one of those words that's not used frequently outside the Bible. Consecrated means to be set apart. To be set apart from common use and set apart to holy use for God's purposes, for God's glory. So, if it is received with thanksgiving, consecrated, Set apart as holy to be used for God's glory by the Word of God in prayer. So, two sources of this revelation to us the Spirit speaking directly to us as we pray, and God's Word. Our prayer does not change the nature of food, our prayer doesn't change the nature of any of God's good gifts. But by praying, we acknowledge that God has blessed the food. We acknowledge that God has blessed the marriage. And God has blessed all the good things for our use and our participation in life and in this kingdom. Because God has set them apart, set us apart. 
use these things and these relationships, this food, to be used for God's glory. So I want to ask you, I give you a chance to respond out loud. Are you thankful to God? Are you thankful? Um, I'd like us to, to give some specifics. What are you thankful for? I'll start. 